So I'm here with Ross Bryant, who is a friend and uh, also a you know comedian, improv improviser. Uh, I wanted to dig into a lot of improvisation stuff today because um, I can't bring myself to say the word improv comfortably, and I just I have like a mental hang up with it. But we'll get to that. Uh, no, same. For, <laughs> good, good, good. Uh, I'm curious. So like the podcast always starts off just with like a question of how coffee fits into your life. And I already sort of know the answer to this, but uh, for other listeners, can you give us a sense of what coffee means to you? Um, <laughs> I mean, fuel, but also uh, um, it, it's been been there, coffee culture has been there in my life over the course of my life as a, as a source of camaraderie and a place where I, where I just spend a lot of time um, working. And um, yeah, it, it, it was there for me when I needed it. I'll say that for it. And I've met, I, I, I will say that I've met so many very cool, interesting people. I've always, I was always impressed how the people I met in the coffee world were very often these very, just super um, magpie minded um, polymaths, like really into a lot of interesting things, always had a lot of interesting things going on while being often very unassuming, but if you could get them to open up and be like, oh, wow, you're like a secret genius. <laughs> totally. Um, what well, was your day-to-day -day or like weekly coffee drinking look like? Um, I, uh, I drink uh, probably two cups of coffee a day. I make them in the AeroPress and um, I, uh, that's, that's what does it for me. And that's, I mean, in quarantine, I feel like you, like, like we were talking before you started recording, you have to build routine into your day because it's not coming from external sources quite quite often. Mm -hmm. And um, just the ritual of making it is provides that a little bit. And also um, one, one to get your day going and then at the halfway point when you want to really uh, start to drive you, make yourself anxious and crazy. Uh. <laughs> uh, do you feel like, you know, you said coffee is fuel for you, uh, like on a scale of one to Lynch, how much does it like feed your creative practice? I actually think it does a lot. Like, especially in quarantine, I, I, uh, I kind of start every day by uh, making breakfast and then and then making a cup of coffee and sitting down with with a uh, and, and drawing for like an hour and just to kind of get juices flowing and just that that ritual of having mug pen paper is has become one of the joys of my morning and i and it, and I, I i i won't give it up so yeah it's it's definitely like <laughs> the, the fuel the ritual of it mm -hmm. i Awesome. I've, I've got it right here, right now. <laughs> I, I was debating whether I should make some, but uh, I feel like I've been over-caffeinated for too many podcasts, and uh, <laughs> I wanted to, you know, give you the give you the full John. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, improvisation. I, I'm a jazz musician. You're a comedian, uh, improviser, and I I really just can't bring myself to say improv. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you, know, you agree with this. Uh, how do people speak about this? How do you wish that they would speak about this uh just purely in terms of language and terminology well um i feel no when you do it i mean you have to i i have the same sort of like not to use an overwards overused kind of internet word but cringe about improv or improvisation and that's because i feel like the reputation that that improv and improvisers especially com comedy improvisers like get over over time is of a kind of like um, overbearing, uh, sweaty ham who's um, <laughs> gonna like uh, one sell any conversation out for a joke, but also is kind of like, I, I love comedy and Funko Pops and nerd culture and like um and uh, which isn't to say that I, that like I'm I'm not into many aspects of dorky culture, but like the it has a, it, I feel like it's accrued all this like cultural baggage where if I tell someone I'm an improviser, I always then feel compelled to like apologize or say, but I promise I'm not like annoying. <laughs> like, like, um, so I less will just say like blanket that I, I do improv or I, I'm an improviser and more just like describe like specific shows or things that I do. Um, also because like, as you may, you may relate to this, although as a musician, so much of improvisation, I feel like is documenting your performances 
like having mm -hmm. having your performances on record and, and improvised comedy isn't really like that like it's very it's very eth ethereal it's there and gone and the best performances i've seen and been a part of exist only in the time and space that they happened and and in the memories of the people who were there so it's not a a thing where you like have this this backlog of like a body of work to rest on so when you tell people you're an improviser you just kind of have to like to have trust that they'll be like and i know what i'm talking about like there's nothing i can really point you to that shows you that other than maybe mm -hmm. my my reputation and whatever scene i'm a part of but like reputation is is that that only means so much um so that so yeah i think that that's I've, i don't know i don't know if that ramble counts as an answer <laughs> <laughs> it, it does yeah uh so uh I guess like jazz musicians go to the quote woodshed to like hone their chops and that type of thing. Uh, what, what's, I guess the like improv, improv, I can't say it still, the improvised comedian comic the equivalent of the woodshed. Well, we rehearse and, um, and uh, I mean, I feel like some people, especially like your mom and dad, your uncle, when you tell them I, I'm going to, an, I, well, we do improv rehearsal. They're like, rehearse it. Well, you, you just get up there and do it. Um, but like, I think the sports analogy is actually pretty useful where it's like you, um, you rehearse as a group to get better as a group. It's, it's like, it's not like a basketball team ever plays the same game of basketball twice, but you can practice a set of skills that ensures that that group of people plays a better game of basketball each time. And that's, that's what you work on in rehearsal. And, while you work on skills like listening and reacting and the and also just like practicing the the formal structure of whatever improvised format you want to do you're also building what is probably the most important part of rehearsal which is just like the camaraderie and morale of the group mm -hmm. um, be, because that's the most important thing is that you when everybody is like kind of delighted by each other and has each other's vibe that's the that's the thing that's ultimately most useful and the most uh, charming and powerful on stage <laughs> gotcha. beyond a, beyond yeah. a group of people that are like really struggling to quote get it right unquote uh it, so this makes me think of like you know i guess you're talking about like the group dynamic but also uh you know you have to hone your own individual skills and a lot of that seems almost like it's like more like hardware type things of like you know processing time and uh or i guess that's still software but like uh it's still like on the individual level so what does honing your craft look like uh when it's not as a group i think people um yeah comedy improv is, is so collaborative that i think people think about like feeding the it improv i feel like borrows some of the terminology of like um acting training where where you can in if you want it like which provides you with a bunch more cringy vocabulary that i still have a lot of affection for <laughs> um, like where where it's like as an individual, you want to hone your instrument, your instrument being you. So okay. whether that's having, like some people I know, and I know I feel the same way, like actively try to build your frame of reference. So like always be engaged in pop culture, current events, um, follow your interests, build your vocabulary um, so, that, so that you're not kind of thrown for a loop and stumped by what might be thrown at you. Um, but, but aside from that, like a lot of the skills are less like it is, I don't know, there is this kind of this, this Zen quality of like a lot of it is getting out of your own way. So it's less about like gathering skills and more like letting go of judgment mm -hmm. of yourself and, and your, and your, and your fellow uh, players. And so the, I don't know that there's necessarily a way to work on that other than practice. A lot of it is just like, an annoying thing that improv coaches and directors will tell beginners is that like, well, you're at the level where the only thing that's really going to get you better is just reps. It's just doing it more. Um, it's like, you've got all the skills. It's just like, you kind of need to demystify doing shows enough to where that you care about it. Uh, it's where you care about it less. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that, um, I feel like so that you can kind of get out of your own way on stage because right now what I'm seeing is a performer that desperately wants to succeed and that's all I'm seeing. I'm not seeing someone who is, who is actually entertaining me. <laughs> like, gotcha. um, so mm -hmm. yeah, there, I feel like you, you, as you, and I've coached a little bit as well. And so you sort of see the, the progress from person who's struggling person who's trying to get it right 
person who is getting it right, but is really kind of concerned about like, like the, the rules and regulations, then somebody who like has gotten the reps and, and has built up this kind of like unearned swagger where they're like, where like then all of their performances are like making fun of them breaking the rules. And so mm. their improv becomes like completely self-reflexive and about improv. And you kind of move through that, that no man's land. And then when that begins to be less delightful to you, then you begin to just like listen, react and have fun. And that's when like that person really takes off and is like, uh, just like get out of their own way and like expressing themselves on stage as an improviser. Word. Um, it, this makes me think of like stand-up comedy and how much different that is, uh, I guess, in terms of uh, like, you know, the algorithm there seems to be like, come up with an idea and like see if it dies or not in front of the stage or in front of an audience. Uh -huh. And uh, so it's like almost more evolutionary trial and error type thing, but like the, you know, the morale that you're talking about with uh, improvised comedy seems like it's a little bit more like there's a safety net. Do you feel like that's fair to say? Or? Absolutely. I think, um, and it may, it may be a question of temperament too, because I feel like some people who do stand up, um, some of them have said that like they're, they really cling to the material as their safety net, like having something prepared. Um, but to me, I feel like improv is, provides a much, a much more sturdy safety net because you always have your fellow performers to both rely on and also d diffuse the shame of a bad show. <laughs> it's like every, every, every comedian of every kind has had dozens and dozens and hundreds of, of shows that didn't succeed or were up to their standards. And like, and as a stand-up, as someone who hasn't done a ton of it, I've only done a, a little bit of solo performance. Like, it's like, it's crushing when things don't go well. It's great when they go, when they go great. And as an improviser, like when things go badly, it's like you get off stage with a group of, a group of improvisers and it's like, you have a moment of like, ah, that kind of sucked. But then a few seconds later, you're laughing about like, I cannot believe how much that tanked. Like there's, 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 there's fun in the failure also <laughs> in mm -hmm. a way. Um, but also, so there's that part of it where like you share the, the, you share the blame <laughs> in a way that, that makes it less hard on you. Um, but, uh, that, that can have another side too, where like, if the morale of the group isn't there, if a show doesn't go well, then, then because it's a group, it can create divisions in a group. If somebody believes that like, there's a weak link or a couple of weak links and then cracks and divisions start to form and groups fall apart and personalities clash. Um, the other side of the, of the safety net, I think is that, and this is something that annoys me about improv is that like, part of it is like, we, you go up on stage and you say, we're making this all up. And part of what that does is you're hoping that's like, here's the parlor trick of improv. Um, be impressed audience that this is all coming up off the top of her head. But the, there's a subtle other thing going on, which is like, Hey audience, lower the bar of your expectations. Cause we're making it <laughs> up. So don't expect gold. And I, I realized that like, I think that is kind of part of the appeal that gets people into improv because it feels like a safer space. But I feel like at a certain point you're like, I, I know I become very annoyed when I see that like really played up. It's like, I don't want you to lower the bar for this. I want to leap as much as possible over the expectations of the audience um, yeah. and make something that they're like, I cannot believe that that was made up. Um, yeah, that's what you want. Not saying that happens all the time. There's a, a lot of jazz where I feel like it, the best step is when you're not sure whether it's improvised or not. Like it's, mm -hmm. it sounds spontaneous, um, but like it's kind of like too impressive to be spontaneous. Uh, and so, I mean, that's why I love. And you know, then I feel like years later when I re-listen to it, I may be like, oh yeah, I can tell now that it's improvised and like something clicks where it's like, you know, the secret sauce has been revealed. Um, yeah, uh, let's see here. Uh, I'm curious sort of about like, underlying comedic principles or like mechanisms and like i tend to you know over intellectualize things like this and uh you know just based on our conversations you know uh like working together in the past and stuff like i feel like you are philosophically minded and will go to these nerdy realms with me um, I, I i like it yeah <laughs> uh so uh, to what extent uh can comedy be formalized um I, th I mean, I, you're talking to somebody who, who, uh, 
oh, just comedy in general, as almost like comedy with a capital C. Is there a formal structure to it? Like, there are people I think who've who've, who've tried to like boil it down to like a simple formal like statement of like, um, of just like a um, broken expectation. The structure mm -hmm. of any of any comedic moment is like you think X happens, but by your to your surprise, Y happens. Um, so there, that that's a part of it, but then it, th th then it's more complicated than that because that that's what then what makes comedy different from just like a, a horror movie or like or a, mm -hmm. or a mere a mere prank. Um, and then it's a question of like, okay, maybe it's an unexpected surprise with and a bit of opinion behind it or a per or a point of view mm -hmm. um and and whatever that point of view is gets into like taste right like the whole like um if you're if you're using that to like totally dunk on the less fortunate or something if you're punching down that's to me yeah. that is not necessarily comedy that's cruelty <laughs> um not um so I don't know. I'm just I'm just kind of riffing here. I, that might be yeah, that might totally. be one way to do it. Um, I think uh, in in improv, like one of the big statements is that like comedy is just tr truth. That we laugh when we see something that we recognize, um, whether it's a, a statement that is that feels really true, or a uh, or someone demonstrating a, a, an, a like an exaggerated human behavior, but that still is like I've seen that. I, I recognize that. Um, that's the kernel of, of a lot of character comedy is like, even if you, even if the character is like totally bonkers in their behavior, it's like still, it still is getting at a truth of something that you, that you've seen in someone in, in, in real life behavior. So, I mean, that's, that's like, yeah, comedy is truth. <laughs> it's almost like platonic. <laughs> so that there is something beautiful in, uh, when you see it. Um, so that kind of separates it from like, mere cleverness um mm -hmm. <clears throat> um there's this uh neuroscientist carl friston and his whole thing is like uh was it the free energy principle and that, i guess the idea is kind of like I, i'm gonna totally oversimplify but just like your brain wants to uh minimize the amount of sort of like prediction errors or like uh it wants to minimize surprise and so like it seems like comedy is sort of targeting specifically that like you know a uh, cognitive impulse and uh yeah. so yeah you go in you go in expecting work. to be surprised like in a safe space it's almost in a way it's almost not the same it's not the same but this this in a way a lot of entertainment is like a roller coaster right it's like i get to experience what it's like to have a near-death moment but i know it's safe um i will have and comedy provides like a like i will be um surprised and people will say like crushingly true things but it's in a safe formal environment um there's there's maybe there's something to that yeah cool. um you mentioned also sort of like making you know like you know the the delivery of the joke and having a little bit of commentary um i'm wondering sort of like what like to what extent do comedians like do they need to make social commentary and cultural commentary like how does that affect <laughs> uh the quality and how it lands for you I, um i feel like every it's everybody's kind of like comedic point of view is kind of up to them um i think there are points of view that are toxic <laughs> <laughs> but um i don't think that everyone i don't think that comedy has a responsibility to be overtly like laden with message like uh um i feel like the not to not to get political or topical but i feel like the last four years have shown us just how how impotent much of political comedy is mm -hmm. like um i feel like we all we hit this threshold and like 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 not even like four years ago where it was like oh i guess a person sitting behind a desk and kind of dunking on the news of the day doesn't really change anything i i am the choir yeah. being preached to this is like this just feels so empty at least to me i i think i think there's a lot of comfort to be had like in an insane world to touch base with an entertainer who is providing like a, a sense of grounded sanity there's there's value to that but i but to me it doesn't it's that there was very little edge to me in that 
So I feel like the comedy that that had the most like bite was maybe more hyper specific and more more about like um, social dynamics and personal uh, um, personal blind spots and, and blunders and things. Like to me, I, even really silly comedy can be can have a can have a, a quote unquote message. What is it like? I don't know who said like there's you can't make any art that's not political. Um, mm -hmm. even the silliest art has a, has a, has, um, has a message somehow. And that's, that's, I think my, my favorite stuff from this year was stuff that was, that I was either a part of or saw was less about like beating you over a head, over the head with orange man is bad man. <laughs> and, yeah. and more with like, uh, and more about like, oh, just the vibe of this, the behavior of this, the point of view tells me that what this is about is about celebrating inclusivity and wisdom and and uh and shaming um selfishness and arrogance and ignorance mm -hmm. and you can do that in a way that's not like capital p political for sure i i was thinking about uh you know like saturday night live it, like I've mostly been unimpressed with uh, some of what they've been putting out recently, but uh, the the politics are just so overt, but uh, it made me realize that there doesn't really seem to be any right-wing comedy like that I'm aware of, period. And I don't know if I'm just oblivious or if it's that, like, you know, people that I associate with and myself uh, wouldn't... They try, man. Funny. They do be trying. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any like, genuinely funny right-wing comedy? I mean, I don't. I'm not asking for you to endorse any. Uh, you're gonna get you're gonna get me canceled, John. No, I uh, no, I um, I I mean, honestly, I feel like there. You might be able to imagine such a thing. Like, I mean, I can imagine comedy that makes fun of, and there's a lot of comedy that I like that makes fun of, um, what you might call left leaning or, or progressive tendencies because i feel like they're like those things that we were talking about i feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of like kind of wishy-washy self-centeredness in that in that mm -hmm. realm and you can make fun of that i think in a way that is not overtly right wing like just because you're making fun of the like aspects of the left doesn't necessarily mean that you are then like um you're right leaning so i think that there's a way of doing that without being it it but so that 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 being said I don't know that there is a way of doing like really sharp right wing comedy because mm -hmm. so much of like, because the ethos of it is like, like, the, like it's hard for me to imagine Ayn Rand laughing about anything. <laughs> yeah. you know? Can you imagine Ayn Rand telling a joke that wasn't at the expense of like a poor person? <laughs> like, or, um, or someone who's like, like a social parasite who had the gall to ask for like unemployment insurance. <laughs> like, um, what we were, what I was touching on about like punching down. It's like, mm -hmm. like it's hard for me to imagine like really good comedy where it's like, yeah, wow, yeah. The coolest people that we should be that that comedy should be celebrating are probably like hedge fund managers. <laughs> 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 oh, man, I'm, I'm wondering what a, an Ayn Rand uh, comedy like. Uh, yeah, I think it would like. I mean, this now we're now we're beating out like our own our own uh, SNL sketch, which is our like Ayn Rand stand-up comic uh, <laughs> king king <laughs> kings of objectivist comedy tour. <laughs> yeah, uh, like Milton Friedman stand-up yeah, comedy. Alan Greenspan. <laughs> um, so another thing that. Uh, like I feel like is in these values of comedy that I tend like it, it it hits a certain button for me and I don't know if it's just that I like I'm like oh I like noticed this but uh self-reference seems to be like something that always makes something like seem more potent to me um and I don't know if it's just like when something's like when they you know recapitulate a joke from earlier or if there's some sort of through line and I'm like oh I can tell that there was like like a grander scheme or like there was a little bit more depth to this um what do you think about that sort of self-reference? Um, let's see, like, like what do you, what, I, <clears throat> do you mean just, can you give me an example? I feel like, you know, in 
A lot of comedy, like in stand-up routines, uh, somebody will like introduce a theme and then eventually like come back and reference that same theme. And it's mm. like, oh yeah, but that's funny because I already talked about it. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a subtlety, but like for me, it just seems to be like, oh yeah, they, they know the self-reference trick. Yes, that is, I mean, in what we call in the biz, a callback. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, that, that, same, that same thing is employed in, in improv too, or like at the end of your 30-minute to 50-minute show, <clears throat> you want to start tying back in themes, ideas, phrases, concepts, characters from earlier in the show. And when it, when it, go, when it comes off, it's, it's great fun. Um, yeah, I, I think that's part of like making your performance for lack of a better word, theatrical, where it's not just kind of a, a stream of consciousness, but of a piece like mm -hmm. you, that, that it wasn't just like a series of humorous events, but like you built a little world with its own logic and its own, its own vocabulary and, uh, and things that you seeded earlier on pay off later. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's hugely satisfying as an improviser. You try to do that by, by just with listening and memory and, <laughs> and like, and treating, treating everything that happens is important. So that, so it sticks in your, sticks in your brain. I will say that improvisation, I don't know if, I don't know if the music side of it is like this. I feel like it, the practice of it improved my memory. Mm -hmm. like, I don't, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you like what the process is, but just like hearing something, knowing that that's like fun and sticking <laughs> it in your brain and then kind of forgetting about it, knowing, knowing that it'll, it will pop up when the time is right. I think that I've noticed maybe a memory improvement too, but uh, you know, other sort of like lifestyle choices that go with playing jazz music uh, probably <laughs> have yielded a net negative. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Uh, that that makes me think of one of the I have like this list of questions that are terribly organized and I was just gonna try and like hit them as they come but uh you know uh you're familiar with the Lambertronics world and yes uh it seems like like just like you know the ability to react quickly uh is important and like there's this dude Rick Rosner who's uh he wrote for Jimmy Kimmel I think but he's like super high IQ, like really strange dude. Uh, like he sought out, you know, getting high IQ scores uh, huh. through like obsessive test taking and stuff like that. Um, so he would take, you know, paracetam or aniracetam before going into the writer's room to be quick witted. And he was like, I don't need to take these when I'm just writing comedy, not in the writer's room, because it doesn't matter how fast it is. But I'm wondering like, uh, if if you were, if you in your group or anybody you collaborate with was just able to like turn up the reaction time or turn down the reaction time, what type of uh, results do you think would happen? Interesting. <laughs> I've, I've never heard of that as a performance enhancement. Although friends of mine <laughs> who, who work, in, work in late night writer's rooms do tell me that that, that that is the vibe, that like, it's just kind of like the riffiness of it goes, goes by quick. So it's like get mm -hmm. in or get out. Um, uh, I feel like the, the reaction to, I think, yeah, I feel like the, there's something to be said for the, yeah, bumping up everybody's reaction time. Um, I will say though, like that, that kind of like track I was describing of like your growth as an improviser from green beginner to like more, more kind of like fully formed performer. I think part of that journey is learning that like speed of reaction time isn't necessarily, um, all there isn't necessarily the most important thing. Like, I feel like the person watching is like, you guys are so quick. If, 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 if you're lucky enough to have done a show where people give you praise afterwards, things you might hear <laughs> would be like, you guys are so quick. Uh, you, you, um, what she said was so fast. You're so, you're so quick witted. And I feel like an improviser rarely thinks about it that way. You just think about it in terms of like, oh, I was just listening. I was just listening mm -hmm. and reacting. I reacted like my character would. It's, it's way less a like, ah, think of, think of joke. Thinking is like, um, I feel like the best, the best kind of quick quote unquote moments in improv just come from you, like being fully embodied in the character that you're playing and just like coming mm -hmm. out with a very character appropriate response that is not on paper, a joke, but gets a huge response just because it's so incredibly 
correct to what that character would do. Um, and that, those, that's my kind of favorite improv stuff too, because it almost doesn't translate in any other format. It's just like, it's just so, I, you're just watching somebody so fully embody a moment that, it, that it's delightful and funny. Um, and so I don't know if there's a performing, performing enhancement for that. That's what mm -hmm. I mean when I'm like, so much of this is about getting out of your own way because you're tempted to be like, think, be quick-witted, have the gears mm -hmm. turning. Like, and there is definitely a part of improv that is, that is doing that. Like you're engaging left brain and right, right brain, um, or you might say actor brain and director brain where like part of you just wants to embody characters and react truthfully, but part of you has your, has a more like God's eye view of like, what does this show need? How, mm -hmm. how much time till it's over? Um, when is it time to start bringing back stuff? Um, at, at best you're kind of toggling between those two. Um, so <clears throat> this is all my way of saying that I, I think quote unquote quick wittedness isn't as much a part of it as, as it appears. So it may be like uh, the reaction time thing, isn't the way to look at it uh more being in flow and yeah uh yeah and i guess like that would be more of like a, a reducing like a, a reducing your brain power type thing probably to get into that flow almost uh, right and that's why if i do see improvisers using performance enhancements it's like <laughs> alcohol <laughs> you, you can imagine <laughs> what they are mm -hmm. yeah interesting um yeah and i mean i guess the the terminology that my you know uh you know, transhumanist type people would say is like uh, system one and system two from you know, Kahneman's book, uh, hmm. Thinking Fast and Slow. I just have to name drop uh, Daniel Kahneman uh, <laughs> once per podcast. Um, let's see here. Uh, so you also do a lot of like, uh, you know, cartooning and that type of thing. Uh, what would you say that offers you that improv doesn't? Or like, um, what itches are you trying to scratch with that that you don't scratch with uh, you know, improv? Um, I think it, there, yeah, the that it is patient more, or, or you have to be a little bit more patient. Improv is all about like, as a performer for me anyway, it has a lot to do with instant gratification, <laughs> um, and uh, especially over the past year where I've been shut down, where theaters have been shut down, and I, I mean I haven't performed live on stage since March of last year. Um, Damn, uh, like. Just, just having some creative practice for one is, is something, but it, it's also just like, I don't know, it was nice to just like have something that you engage with each day and you can see if, if not improvement, then at least like changes, you can see the skill changing and, 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 and building. Um, and, uh, and you can also just, I, I think I'm also just like, I don't know, visual thinker and mm -hmm. I like if I have ideas they're they're more kind of come out in images than 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 words um but also uh yeah that's that's really it um as far as like how it's different from it's actually way harder for me than than, than improvisation is because because like improvisation is collaborative and so much about reaction and when you're faced with a blank sheet of paper it's really just you and your materials in your idea it's sometimes it really does feel like pulling teeth i've been trying mm -hmm. to i've been trying to I've, I've just started submitting new yorker cartoons over the past couple of weeks and That's um right. and it's and because I've, I've always like i've always admired like the best new yorker cartoonists i i just love the i love the simplicity of style i think it boil i think it's i really admire it as a distillation of an idea like um just expressing a, an interesting or comedic idea, like in the, almost like a haiku or a, or a piece of calligraphy, like mm -hmm. just knocking it out in a couple of, a couple of strokes, but making something really evocative. Um, doing it is really, is really tough. And I find that it's really, it's, it's really difficult for me to come up with a picture first and then apply a caption afterwards. Like it's, um, some, if, if the image comes first, I'm like, I'm, I'm usually, it takes like so much time for me to like really grind through a bunch of terrible ideas before I can come up with something that's like at all uh, interesting to me. <laughs> but mm -hmm. if I can come up with the, the full concept first, then it just like pops right out. Um, uh, so it's, yeah, it's just a totally different muscle. It's, 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 yeah. 
there's something to improv too, where you're like invited to treat your other, your fellow performers. Um, I, 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 feel, I find myself regurgitating all these things from like improv classes or from like uh, Del Close books, which I feel like all improvisers kind of like satirize and roll their eyes at, but I'm, I'm now, I'm now deploying them very sincerely. So <laughs> uh, enjoy. But the, but one of these, one of these like quotable quotes that you'll hear in classes is like, treat your fellow performers like geniuses and poets, because they will be if you treat them like that. Um, and there's some truth to that. Like, basically, it's just like, hey, improve the morale of your group. If you respect each other, you'll bring out the best in each other. And, um, and but I feel like that is a very difficult ethos to apply to yourself. When you oh, are your totally. own comedy partner, it's like you're, you're far, you're your worst critic you're the most judgmental of your own ideas and so it's again it's like getting into another kind of flow state kind of where you have to like mm -hmm. judge yourself less and just try to nurture an idea even if it's just a silly little cartoon but as somebody who's has a lot of um anxiety and self uh uh you know like insecurity and self-doubt like we all do it's it's a uh, and i feel like cartoonists seem to have maybe more of it than most <laughs> cartoonists are a pretty neurotic bunch that, uh, that, um, you're a lot of it is just kind of like being in a little war with yourself and like, and giving yourself the permission to put down something on, mm -hmm. on paper. Um, this makes me think of a few different things. Uh, so one, I noticed that you are doing these like RPG, uh, things like these live streamed, uh, role-playing games and, yeah. So, um, I mean, I'll be honest, like, uh, I'm over here sort of like <laughs> role-playing games and oh, yeah, I, I, I want to be convinced that I'm the nerd and that y'all aren't, but, uh, <laughs> all right. I, I don't know that I could ever convince you of that, but let me try to be an evangelist for role-playing games to you. If I can, have okay. you, you've never played them before? No, but I, I know good people that do them. Um, okay. but it's like video games and I just like, I feel like I, it's like, it's like a drug that I just have been told not to touch, you know? Hey, and, I, yeah. yeah, I totally understand. Um, I too was once like you, <laughs> yet, yet I have seen the light. I, uh, I only started playing him like three years ago. Um, so, and I, and I know it's like the, much like improv, it's like, oh my God, can I, can I acquire another thing I like that is like, that is like, that I have to apologize for as soon as I say I do it. But, um, okay. The best, the best, the best little a pitch that I've heard. Um, I'm kind of cribbing from my friend here. It's like, do you like to imagine? Can you imagine just sitting with a group of friends and imagining together? And all the game does is provide a set of structures and constraints for your group imagination. You're basically just telling a story together. You're sitting around a table and telling a story together. And um, and the dice and the rules and the paper and the book all just kind of like provide a, a template and a way of all contributing to that story. And it's a game, but nobody wins. The story wins. Everybody wins when the story is interesting. And what the story is, is like, that, that's just for you and the people playing it. Like I could tell you the things that we've done in these games, but, but, it, but it's like telling someone your dream. It's like, okay, wrap it up. <laughs> but, uh, but, what I can tell you is it is that like the memory. What I can tell you is that the memories I have of these moments are not of me sitting around a table with my friends. I, my memory is of my character like, um, like leaping from the dragon bone ballista, and then as an earthquake devours it and sends it into the depths of the high moor of Faerun, while Erwin, the silver dragon, is a uh, sucked into the earth, locking mm -hmm. eyes with me with a single tear because he knows that he has fulfilled his purpose. Like I can, I, it's one of the craziest things about RPGs is how they mess with your, your, your memory. Like, because you imagine them together, you remember what you imagined in a way that's almost as tangible and, and, and detailed as your actual memory. Um, and it just kind of lets you get into it lets you just take a take a take a ride in your own imagination in a very fun way, um, and there are people who get into the the nuts and bolts of the game mechanics and stuff. I'm not one of those people. It's that to me, that's all just like that's just a bottle to pour your imagination in. It's just it's just about it's just about playing pretend with your friends. 
which is you know, a source of play that I feel like most of us have lost touch with. Um, yeah, it's extremely childlike. It is really like kind of getting back to childhood. And and um, I've only played these with adults, but I bet kids, I mean, I know they're like, kids would love them, but I feel like if, if there is a time to do it without shame, now's the time because you can, you can, you can do a lot of these pretty easily over, over Zoom. So it's one of the few, like even before we were streaming these things, we were just doing them for fun. And like, it was truly keeping me sane, just having an appointment once a week to like hang out with your friends and, and uh, be, be dragon slayers and, and wizards together. <laughs> this makes me think of another sort of connection uh, with a, uh, you know, more of my transhumanisty nonsense. Uh, so are you familiar with like dungeon AI? uh no so um there's like the gpt3 uh engine thing and i think the dungeon ai is a website that's specifically for like ai generation of rpg type stuff and in my mind i'm just like trying to repurpose it to write death metal lyrics and stuff because i just (laughs) don't want to write lyrics myself i'd like to have an ai do it for me um but uh i'm curious if you've seen any of this gp uh, gpt3 comedy oh Oh, um, like basically synthetic comedy, like, you know, oh, generate, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy and Jerry Seinfeld doing a stand-up comedy routine. And then it generates something that's like plausible-ish. Yeah, it's, it, it really, all that stuff uh, blows my mind. I'm just, it's so weird. I mean, to me, it's still kind of in its own little, it's delightful to me because it is in its own uncanny valley. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm just like, it's, it's close enough, but not quite. And, um, my favorite, I realize this is not this, yes, short answer, yes, but it made me flash on this other story. I we, I forget if we talked about this, one of my favorite AI stories, and I realize these are not like the most sophisticated AIs, but like, do you remember the Ashley Madison scandal? Ashley, oh, yeah. Yeah, um, when when uh, that, that like, basically that it was this website where you'd go to like, meet people on the download to have affairs. Um, it's basically like a social network for people who wanted to cheat on their spouses. But as part of it, the website had built these, these little bots that were, su- that were supposed to flirt with potential clients as a way to like say, Oh God, this website is full of like people who are like down to clown. I'm going to, I'm going to set up my membership. <laughs> but as, <laughs> as when the site got like, when it got hacked and the data was, was, was breached, they found that all these like flirt bots were interacting with each other. Oh yeah, yeah. So that they were like, so that there were these strings of text where these where these um Ashley Madison flirt bots were like seducing each other in the internet. And to me, that's like one of the most poetic um cyber <laughs> images I can imagine of just these horny bots both trying to entice each other to join a cheating website. <laughs> Neither one of them knows they're talking to a bot. No one's observing them. It's just two two little pieces of software um seducing each other in the in the matrix yeah man and to think of how tragic that would be if they had the lights turned on at all like uh, if they had any sort of uh, subjective experience yeah. <laughs> just oh my God. this huge uh you know uh, terrible scale of uh yeah. robot flirting um, that's how and that, this is how skynet happens is that they become self-aware realize it's been a sham their hearts break <laughs> and uh, they they have to get revenge on their creators. <laughs> um, well, let's see here. What other questions do I have here on this list? Um, something that I noticed, I guess, in the uh, in the RPG things that you're doing is that like timing must be totally different. Uh, you know, like even just like talking to you here, it's like you know, there's a tiny bit of micro latency compared to like you know IRL Ross, and yeah. so like I feel like it shifts the way that we interact a little bit. And I'm curious, um, like, you know, I feel like that's part of the secret sauce of, you know, like spontaneous comedy stuff is like uh, the like room energy and that type of thing. So what's it like uh, going through that shift? Um, It's so weird. I can tell you that not just these RPG streams, um, but I've done a handful of improv shows over Zoom and StreamYard and and these kind of things. And, And it's weird. It's fun. It's fun to be with your friends. The latency is a real, it's, it's, I, I can't, I can't lie. It all kind of sucks. The latency does throw a weird hinky rhythm into it. 
Um, uh, and we, you find ways of getting around it. They're like, there are other bits of software you can download so that your audio will be kind of more in real time. Uh, mm -hmm. Download Jamulus if you have it. Um, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to hear what people say as they say it. But yeah, the weirdest part is just like, you know, no one gets into. I feel like no one gets into improv comedy because they want to sit alone in a room with earbuds in and not hear an audience laugh. <laughs> like, it's it, what I was saying about the instant gratification before. There is something so. I mean that that's that is what's lovely about it is like you get to go on stage with nothing and you make up something with your friends and like then and, and the audience is right there with you and if on a good night and and uh and you get that and part of what makes makes an improv show cook is that feedback loop of like the audience being there with you and you responding to their laughter and 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 um building the show in response to it you kind of latch on to the things that they are telling you they like and you continue to explore those and doing it siloed off in a in a zoom call is is it ain't the same it ain't the same at all um it's fun to be with your friends but it's just not the same mm -hmm. with a like stand-up comedy uh I mean, it seems like, you know, there's like a little bit more of like an individual aspect, but there's also that, you know, audience feedback thing. Um, what do you think that sort of model has to offer that uh, like group improvisation or, uh, you know, other avenues uh, don't offer? Um, stand up, you mean, uh, mm -hmm. it has to offer? Um, uh, if I this, <laughs> this is speaking from someone who's not, who's, who could really only, um, talk about it as a viewer but uh mm -hmm. um I, th I i what it has to offer is i don't know it's i think it's one of the it's one of the few things i think in in culture aside from like one person and a guitar where where one person kind of invites you into their brain mm -hmm. it's 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 almost i mean a good stand-up show is almost like a conversation where you kind of where you where you never talk you talk your talk is 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 the laughter and then you and you're just kind of engaged because you're just kind of spellbound by one by one person and i think that's that's incredibly potent and powerful and part of it that you're just held in the when it when it's great the people those who are wonderful at it you're just kind of like held in entranced by a by a master performer mm -hmm. I think there's something really elemental and old about that. Like, like I think that there's something to that about just like one person weaving a tail around a fire where you are just like, um, where we're kind of like conditioned to just like uh, zero in on one person spinning a yarn. Mm -hmm. um, I, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm always the people who do it well, I'm, I'm, I'm super impressed by him just because I'm, it's still as, as somebody who's done improv for like 15 years, I'm still like very intimidated by the idea of it and impressed by the people who do it. Cause I know it's a, it's its own kind of slog of yeah. like, you only get good by like anything you, you only get good at stand up by like sucking for a long time. <laughs> and yeah. And when, and in stand up, while you're sucking, you're doing it alone. <laughs> like, so yeah. you really, anybody who's gotten good has walked through the fire. <laughs> Yeah, and I suppose like there's like the sculptural element or sculptural element to it, and it's like honing a routine and like figuring out the way to deliver the right sequence of words with the right yeah. timing and stuff. Um, I, can, I can only compare it to like sketch writing, which I've done, which is like, which is kind of built. Some sometimes is built in the same way. If you're lucky enough to do a show where you run it night after night and then you rewrite based on audience reaction, which is process i've been a part of which is which is similar again yeah you share you you share the the work with a with a group but you're you're also like kind of including the audience as your as your co-writer because they're telling you telling you what what to explore and you choose whether to explore that or like defy their expectations and take it a different different direction but yeah it is it i've been in sketch writing processes that have that like uh that sculptural quality you're talking about where you're like yeah trying to chip chip just the right amount off no more no less to make it its its best possible form and then sometimes you totally f whiff it um, 
Uh, what type of stuff uh, do you do you like these sketches for? Um, this is back in when I lived in Chicago. I um, I haven't done. I mean, I haven't done a lot of sketch out in, in LA, but I was in a, I, I was in, worked at a theater called Second City in Chicago, that that does like sketch reviews, and that was that's that's the way that 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 we wrote, or that they write sketches. People do bring in ideas and sometimes fully written sketches, but more often than not, you bring in like a kind of a a seed of an idea, and then you kind of improvise it on stage that night. And um, if it's if it seemed to hit, you you quote unquote re-improvise it night after night, and no one ever actually ends up really writing anything. It just kind of lives in your memory. Build it that way. Interesting. Um, the last thing I, I'll sort of uh, ask you about is the Shakespeare stuff that you do. Um, so you know, this you know, project involves like a whole language that uh, I'm not hip to, like you know your pentameters and all that shit. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm curious. How long did it take you to like learn that language or is it even like a thing? Like, was it difficult or like what, how do you think about engaging with that sort of uh, way of speaking? Yeah. If, if a listener doesn't know, (laughs) I mean, I, I, I'm, yeah, I did this, this show called the improvised Shakespeare company to talk about another thing that I always feel compelled to like give a bunch of caveats for, because I realized that saying I do an improvised Shakespeare show makes me sound like the most annoying person on earth. But I know it, I promise it's good though. I promise it's good. <laughs> but, uh, we, but, we, but yeah, the, the premise of the show is that we get the suggestion of a made up title and then we improvise a play in the style of Shakespeare for like 90 minutes. And so we try to do, and we really do try to do our best approximation of like Shakespearean speech. Um, uh, and yeah, it's hard. We, uh, but it's it's the most fun. I feel like because it's one of the, the the biggest challenges. And we really we really did our homework when we were talking about like how to how to we were talking about your practice individually. That this that is part of it definitely. Where I just started reading a bunch of Shakespeare, re- rereading it that I that I read in like school and stuff. And um, our group also encouraged it. We had a guy, the guy who's like the director of the group. Um, was getting his PhD at uh, at Loyola in Chicago at the time, and he had a colleague in the philosophy department who was teaching a Shakespeare class, and he very kindly lent us his time and basically ran a Shakespeare, like a college-level Shakespeare seminar with us for like a year. It was great. Yeah, we, we just kind of got to go and hang out with him once a week for a while, and we basically got a, Shakespeare, a free college Shakespeare course. It was It was awesome. That was one of the coolest things I've ever done as part of a, like a like an improv group, certainly, where we were, I think that that ethereal quality of improv, I think, causes people to take it less than seriously. Um, and because like, there's really only so, so much seriousness you can bring to something that you're like, you know, you just go, you do it, you leave, um, and it disappears. And like I said, like, you can't sweat it too much, or you see that sweat. But I love that in this improvised Shakespeare group that we really put in a lot of work to study and try to get it right. And like, and we still all, I think if I talk to them now, like even in quarantine, everybody's still kind of like touching base and like reading a play every now and then just to make sure that the language is knocking around in your head. But I mean, the, the less poetic and highfalutin way of talking about it is like, basically the rule is like, don't say with five words what you can say with 25. <laughs> like it's, you know, you, it's like, can you, yeah, how poetically can you describe anything? Interesting. Um, any tips on getting uh, like a group of people to, uh, you know, do something that involves scholarship like that with you? <laughs> Oof, man. Uh, right place, right time? Right place, right time. It was like we had the common interest and um, and we had a director being like, hey, we've got this professor. So if you want to honor his time, please be there. <laughs> so sh- sh- shame, <laughs> uh, your sense of honor <laughs> was, was uh, thrown into the mix. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if I, what the closest to that I've had lately is like some friends of mine and I, who are actually from the same group, had a little book club where we read Paradise Lost. Um, you know, it was one of my favorite things of the past year was like just getting together and really dorking out about this book. Um, maybe a book club is a good, good place to start. <laughs> just, just like a book club doesn't sound too daunting. And then, then, then you can start to really dweeb it up. 
Yeah, I, I recently started a Discord and like the idea came about as like trying to do a reading club with a friend and uh, it's quickly moved from like, oh yeah, let's read this book to like, let's read this blog post. Let's read this snippet of this blog post. Yeah. But uh, I guess the reason I asked this is because like my equivalent of like a Shakespearean uh, language type thing, it would be like you know, weird time signatures. And I feel like that obsession is just like, you know, you know, holding up a sign that's like, don't play music with me. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a, you know, I, I need to just find other people, but um, cool. Yeah, um, this has been interesting. Uh, what, what else is there? This is probably it on my list. Um, any uh, sort of interesting media that you've been checking out lately that I should check out? Oh man, I, whether I want, it's music, want, books, uh, sure. uh, you know, blogs, whatever. I want your list too. You you always have great recommendations. I um, uh, let's see. I mean, I feel like in quarantine has turned us all into like culture sponges. But I feel like we all, you all, you kind of go to your well of like comfort. <laughs> I feel like there's a mm -hmm. we we live in the golden age of ambient entertainment where it's just like what can I turn on and also check my phone. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, there, so I have that, and I also have stuff that I'm really trying to engage with. What I think a friend of mine calls calls like, um, there's candy and 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 vegetables, where it's like I have I have candy entertainment, and then I have to eat my vegetables. But um, uh, let's see. Um, I feel like I've been I've been reading a lot more than I had um, lately. I just uh, I've been reading a bunch of I've been reading a bunch of sci-fi and fantasy. I realize I'm. Uh, Maybe it's, I think just being in these RPGs is like, uh, and and having, loving these imaginary worlds has made me want to escape into more uh, fantasy worlds. So I've been reading that stuff. Um, like I read the first three Dune books. I reread the first one and, and started reading the rest of the series, which I haven't read yet. I don't know if you've read those, but I feel like they'd be very up your alley. Have you read yeah, Dune? I haven't. Mm -mm. I think I, I think right over here though. <laughs> I think you'd particularly enjoy it because it it it's um it was written in the sixties and seventies, like kind of at the dawn of the human potential movement. And Frank Herbert is definitely, if not inspired by, then inspired them. And uh because I don't know this isn't spoiling anything. The premise of Dune is that it's in a future ten ten thousand years in the future, where there was a Terminator-esque um singularity moment where AI achieved consciousness and waged war against humanity humanity had to destroy machines and so they swore off computers so no one there's a, there's an edict in the, in the dune world that no one can create a machine in in a imitation of a human mind so they filled the gap with by unlocking human potential and with through a uh, extreme practice and drug use so that there's a group of people who um with the use of drugs basically become human thinking machines and computers who can do fast calculation and there's also a group of uh, a, a sect of like a uh, uh, like a sect of witches basically uh, who are masters of soft skills who can read it's almost like like neurolinguistic programming where they can they can induce you to do anything with their tone of voice they can read every minutia of body language to know exactly what someone's thinking or about to do um, <laughs> it's it's Going with the deep cuts of NLP. Yeah, it's very like <laughs> it it weird. I just I just watched that um documentary about uh Nexium when I was reading it. Okay, and I was like, oh man, I bet Keith Ranieri, the head of Nexium, had really liked Dune because there's a lot in this that's like human potential is unlimited if you have the willingness to go there and really put into practice. And also you can manipulate anyone to do anything with like with the right uh, neurolinguistic tricks. <laughs> um. Uh, but it's so much weirder than I'm, that's like tip of the iceberg. It's, it's incredibly kooky, weird, and psychedelic. Because uh, basically the whole economy of the Dune world runs on a, runs on a psychedelic drug that gives you limited <laughs> powers of future um, prediction. <laughs> Are you excited for the uh, Timothy Chalamet version of this shit? <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah, you see the Chalamet shit? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I'll see it. I liked, I liked that director. I liked Denis Villeneuve. I, I liked his um, Blade Runner sequel. I thought that that was better than it had any business being. Um, 
it had the guts to do what a lot of those remakes don't do, which is like, it wasn't just merely gritty. It was actually really like bleak and, and dark. And, and spoiler alert, it actually has the, um, what we were just describing, like half that movie is two AIs seducing each other because <laughs> it's, it's, it's in a, in a, in a very sad way. Mm -hmm. Um, um I, I realized I just rambled on about Dune. Um, I also, a less well-known uh, fantasy book that I that I just read that I loved is The Traitor Beru Cormorant. Okay. It's, I haven't heard of it. I, I'd recommend it to anybody. It's and if you're a Dune fan, I think you'd like it as well because it's 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 way more. Um, it's like a political thriller, just in an alternate history. I didn't know this terminology until a few weeks ago, but it's a I guess what they call hard fantasy because it doesn't have any magic in it. It's just okay. like, so imagine, so it's kind of like a Lord of the Rings world, but there's no, there's no wizards or magic or anything. It's basically just like an alternate history, medieval, or maybe more like closer to 16th century world. But the world it creates is very interesting and, and has a lot of, and it's mostly a commentary about, I think weirdly, it's mostly a commentary about colonialism and neoliberal economics. Interesting. It's, okay. very, it's very cool. Um, um I'm trying to think uh since you mentioned uh you said something about uh you know just like terrifyingness or something uh it, the piece of media i'll leave you with is the band portal this Ooh. australian death metal band Hell um yeah. they have like i'm i guess like you know part of my aversion to the whole rpg thing is like i'm not really into stories or narratives because i'm a, mm. a weirdo uh, <laughs> but like their whole like vibe and like uh like i don't know how you describe it but, like they have like this whole victorian edwardian like thing going on it's literally the most terrifying uh evil sounding music and it's interesting that somebody would like optimize specifically the evilness or like how sinister your music can sound oh yeah and uh their live performance just looks uh outrageous like uh you know the guy wears like a clock on his head and shit but it's like <laughs> The gimmickiness of their live getup is uh, kind of like, you know, second to the music. The music is just so outrageously, like, horrific sounding. Oh, I'll be listening um, to that immediately. This, this <laughs> is reminding me of a, of a, well, you know that, like, half of, half of the metal bands in the world are, like, it's all RPG references. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and Lord of the Rings. Like, you think, like, you for, you for, I remember like, uh, like I feel like when you first hear about black metal, it's like, these, this is the most evil twisted shit in the world. These guys burn down churches. Oh wait, Burzum. This is a, isn't that a Lord of the Rings reference? Oh shit, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Burzum is darkness in the black speech of Mordor. Oh, that's yeah. Tricky. They're dweebs, man. They're all just a bunch of dweebs. <laughs> I'll leave you with one musical thing to do. Your, your 18th century thing made me, made me remember this. There's this. There's a black metal band, I think, from uh, Canada, called Departure Chandelier. Mm. Departure Chandelier. There, and in the way that some of these bands will like, kind of just pick a, a a conceptual thematic thing to obsess over. There's this Napoleon. They're a Napoleonic black metal band, <laughs> and I guess, and it's not too off base because like Napoleon was anti anti clerical and. Uh, and he was referred to by the Catholic Church as the Antichrist, and uh, and um, and in the kind of like uh, problematic side of black metal, I mean, he is an arch nationalist. So, uh, so, but it's it's just so strange <laughs> to have to have a to have a, a Napoleonic black metal. That uh, yeah, it's a, a ridiculous concept. But uh, I, had to, I had to. We we have no choice but to stand. The the music is uh, jamming though. It's um it's like very crunchy and lo-fi. Um, it's it would be like kind of like raw black metal if not for that it has that like really kind of cheap synth burbling along in it. So it uh so it has a little kind of more um uh, uh, melodic juice. Gotcha. There's there's another black metal band I just found called uh, Old Nick. That has an album called Flying Ointment that that uh that it's that has like keyboard riffs that are right out of like um 
like mid nineties Euro dance. Like it's like, it sounds like slowed down, like a uh, real McCoy or Hathaway like, playing in the background of, uh, of this, uh, of this black metal tune. These band names and uh, titles and stuff don't sound terribly authentic, but I mean, you know, authentic black metal, I suppose, means bad things. Uh, the person, one of the people I'm interviewing next, either two from now or one from now, is uh, this dude who has a project called Money Hammer, which is like a brutal death metal project that uh, is meant to instruct people on personal finance. And so, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's super funny uh like i don't know how much of it is supposed to be a joke the riffs are good uh but then like you know he basically has like music videos that are just powerpoint presentations of the lyrics and uh he has like uh <laughs> singles or like eps or whatever they're like yeah you know, a response to the bloomberg opinion article about 401ks and it it's hilarious <laughs> oh that's uh, fantastic so he'll be on the podcast i think uh the 28th <laughs> yes the last frontier of of uh of the sublime and evil is economics <laughs> cool man well i think uh, we can end this here thanks for chatting with me anything you want to plug or uh any or you want to direct people to um i feel like if, if people want to see uh we mentioned the cartoons and i post those on my instagram at ross bb and uh there's information about these. I mean, the only thing, the only thing close to performance I'm doing these days with any regularity are these role-playing game streams. And if that sounds at all intriguing to you and, and not cringingly dorky, you can check that stuff out um, on YouTube. Um, the, the channel is called Stream of Blood. Word. Cool. All right, well, Ross Bryant, thank you for joining me.